3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boomerang people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay respect to Elders past and present and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations people in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement and that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. How are you all today? Good morning, Grace. Good morning, Scenario. Welcome back. Yes, it's very nice to be back after a while. Um, yeah, just went on a break for a couple of weeks. Always, always good to go on a break, Sonera. Yeah, yeah. Now I'm feeling all refreshed. Um, have you all been? It was very nice listening to the shows. Um, still, um, they were all really good. Oh, it's lovely that you've been listening. Yes, of mm-hmm. course, your favourite station. <laughs> <laughs> As always, can't, can't take a break from three CR. No. Yeah, it's just GCR has just always been such a lovely place to wake up to in the morning. Wake up to in the morning when you listen, listen in, and it doesn't matter whether it's just breakfast. You know, it's just like other shows as well that you want to listen to. It's just very nice to. Of course, there's a lot of like issues and news and current affairs that we are listening about, and sometimes we are not really. It's not really positive, obviously, but then you know, we learn. We, it's it's so nice to like hear all these stories and learn. And just kind of see, like, understand stuff. Yeah, no, you're getting uh, news and opinions from people that, uh, you know, have informed mm. yeah. perspectives. Yeah, we have to uh, celebrate the fact that we, um, yeah, work in a place and are producing media that people can trust. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Definitely. So, uh, today, well, this week is Reconciliation Week and it's been mm-hmm. a week of reflection and there's been a lot of uh, conversation in the First Nations world this week, uh, especially regarding the voice to Parliament. And that will be something we'll have up straight up for you at 7.15 discussing with uh, Noel Pearson, who's a uh, who's from Ca- a Cape York leader, la- lawyer and la- lands right ac- lands right activist. As I get that out of my mouth, um, and he'll be de- he was discussing at the inaugural Sydney University event series called Voices on the Voice, which was on which was on last week. Then we'll be going into Sonera. Sonera will be speaking at seven twenty nine regarding uh, the Victoria Forest Alliance and the ending of climate logging in Victoria with Chris uh, Schrumringer. Uh, then Grace, she'll be speaking to Uncle John Baxter, a proud uh, Nogaringa man, uh, so a board member of the Recon- Reconciliation Victoria and First Peoples Disability Network about the ongoing expedition about unfinished, unfinished business in regard in national in regards to National Reconciliation Week. Then I will be speaking uh, to the professor in psychology after eight o'clock. Um, Chair of Anti-Racism Hallmark Research Initiative and President of Academic Board of University of Melbourne, Karen Falkhausen, 
regarding racism in sport and uh, that ongoing issue, which has been a bug in across across every sporting organisation, not just here in Australia. Looking forward to hearing that one, Pat. Yeah, it'll be a very fascinating one given the uh, recent events which have just dropped uh, last night mm. with uh, the AFL. Yeah, um, Hawthorne wrapping and, up their uh, inquiry. Yes, which is fascinating and what's going to transpire from that. Excellent. So uh, on to headlines. Definitely. So uh, firstly, some big news out of Western Australia. As we all know, Mark McGowan resigned on Monday due to exhaustion. Mm -hmm. uh, now, the, the Deputy Premier, Roger Cook, will become the state's next Premier after the Health, Health Minister, Amber Jane Sanderson, confirmed that she would withdraw from the leadership contest. Mr Cook put his hand up for the top job just hours after the outgoing Premier, Mark McGowan, announced on Monday that he would be retiring from politics. Mr Cook, Amber Jane Sanderson and the Transport Minister Rita Safoti had indicated they would seek the leadership role, but Ms Sanderson withdrew late on Tuesday after Ms Safoti uh, announced she would uh, unite with Mr Cook to serve as his deputy. And into other news, Australia rental affordability has dropped to its worst levels in nearly a decade, with the average household uh, spending a third of, of its income on rent as the impacts of, COVID, of the COVID pandemic to be felt on the market. Lower income households pay even more than more than a half of their income going towards their rent, according to new research from ANZ and CoreLogic. The ANZ CoreLogic Housing, Housing Affordability Report has found rental affordability the portion of income required to service a new lease. It is at its highest level nationally since June 2014, with 30.8% of its average income required to service a new lease. Perth saw the worst deterioration of housing affordability for lower income lower-income households between March 2020 and March 2023, while Hobart recorded the worst housing affordability figures with nearly 60% of income needing to pay rent. Only Melbourne saw a slight reduction in the portion of income needed to pay rent for lower-income households due to the growth in income at the 25th percentile level. Sydney is the most unaffordable market for home ownership. The report found that on average, Sydney siders paid more than half their income towards their mortgage and would take about 12 years to save enough for a 20% deposit. And on to other news this week, uh, casino giant Crown Resorts has agreed to pay a $450 million fine after failing to comply with anti-money laundering laws. This comes after Crown admitted to the Australian Transaction Reports and, Anal and Analysis Centre, Austrac, that it did not have the appropriate systems in place to mitigate the risks that were assessed for money laundering and terrorism financing. Crown also admitted that it did not have a transaction monitoring program at, that was appropriate to the nature, size and complexity of their business and that it did not conduct appropriate ongoing customer due diligence on a range of specific customers who presented higher money laundering risks. If the fine is approved by the federal court, it will be the third largest fine in Australian corporate history. Now, on to Grace. Yep, so a former Northern Beaches student known as Sudonim AB has provided evidence that she was groomed, treated like property by convicted killer Chris Dawson when he began the sexual relationship with her. According to Crown Prosecutor Emma Blizzard, and for those who don't know, the Crown case is basically the name for this whole alleged sexual activity, case. So the sexual activity took place at Dawson's pres parents' home 
in the latter half of 1980, when A.B. was only in her senior years. A.B. told the court that Dawson singled her out for attention since grade 10 and made the effort to ensure she was placed in his class the following year. Dawson has not denied the relationship he had with A.B., but disputed the timing of when the alleged sexual activity occurred. At least 10 former students are expected to give evidence for the Crown case over the two-week trial. Claudia? And staying with New South Wales, the overrepresentation of Aboriginal people in Australian custody reached a new high this week, with New South Wales releasing data showing 29.5% of people behind bars in New South Wales are Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. The situation for youth was even more harrowing, with almost 60% of young detainees in New South Wales being Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, an increase of 28% over the last 12 months. Only a quarter incarcerated uh, children in New South Wales had been tried and convicted, and the rest, or the vast majority, were on remand. The New South Wales Aboriginal Legal Service says the New South Wales Government is failing to take recommended steps to reduce the Aboriginal prison and youth detention population. It reiterates its call for reform to the way policing is used against Aboriginal people, in particular an end of the use of the suspect targeting management plan, a New South Wales policy, police policy that aims to reduce crime by targeting people for proactive policing. We're now going to go to a uh, song and when we come back we'll be hearing from Noel Pearson on The Voice to Parliament. This is Nancy Bates in this together. Should I take your hand Would you help me understand I'm searching for the truth there in the dark I know I don't know but there's a yearning in my heart and it speaks to me if I'm awake or sleeping some time to feel your good heart feeling mine I've been hurting for a past I cannot change I'm not looking for anyone to blame so just walk beside me to a place where we'll be free Through the sun and through the rain We will 
travel, my dear friend. Seeing all those things we never saw before. And now we understand each other so much more. Cause if we're young and free, then we need harmony. Yes, if we're young and free, then we need harmony. That was Nancy Bates in this together. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. You have Sonara, Pat, Grace and Claudia with you this morning and hope you're having a great Wednesday. We're going to head on now to our Reconciliation Week uh, segment and just a note to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders listening this morning that this segment mentions the name of someone who has died. Okay, so this week, as our listeners are aware, it is Reconciliation Week and the theme of this year's event is Be a Voice for Generations. The idea behind the theme is to encourage all Australians to be a voice for reconciliation in a tangible way and in our everyday lives. And last Monday, Sydney University ran the first of a public event series called Voices on the Voice. The purpose? To encourage meaningful engagement on the voice to Parliament within the community, and to offer critical insight to inform public understanding and dialogue. They asked Indigenous lands right activist, lawyer and Cape York leader Noel Pearson to be their inaugural speaker. As many of our listeners will know, Noel Pearson has served as a member of the expert panel on constitutional recognition of Indigenous Australians, the Referendum Council, and is currently part of the Voice co-design senior advisory group. He's one of the strongest voices in the Yes campaign. We bring you this segment as a way of engaging our audience in the referendum while acknowledging there is much nuance in the debate. The work of listening and participating in a meaningful discussion while at the same time discarding misinformation and racialised responses requires effort. At 3CR we want to be part of a movement where people are free to make informed choices we will be bringing you a variety of perspectives on The Voice in the weeks and months to come. But for now, let's take a listen to Noel Pearson. And uh, he gave quite a, a long oration, but this morning we're going to hear his uh, words on The Voice to Parliament. In the lead up to his visit as Prime Minister, together with his entourage of government ministers and senior bureaucrats to North East Arnhem Land, again of all places in september 2014 tony abbott did a strange thing 
I recently told the Senate committee inquiry into the bill that will initiate this year's referendum that Abbott had proposed to me that rather than a constitutional body representing Aboriginal and Islander people advising the parliament and government, that a simpler model capable of comprehension by the Australian people would be the allocation of Senate seats for Indigenous peoples. This would follow the special seats allocated to Māori in New Zealand, put in place in the 1920s. Abbott visited New Zealand, presumably on his wife's encouragement, and had extolled the Treaty of Waitangi and other provisions that had been put in place in that country in his closing the Gap speech at the opening of Parliament. I recall a roadside phone call where I attempted to explain that the advisory body would be more acceptable to the public because it did not interfere with the system of democratic representation existing in Australia. The advisory body would provide advice to the parliament rather than be of the parliament. Subsequently, the concept of specially allocated seats was reported in the press. Dennis Shanahan from The Australian reported that Abbott was floating the concept which had purportedly come from his Indigenous Affairs advisers. Where Chief of Staff Peter Credlin was at in all of this is unknown to me. Rosie Lewis from The Australian reported the story. It was unclear who was advising the concept if it was not Credlin. In any case, Shanahan, who reported the float, then subsequently dumped on the idea under the headline, Dedicated Senate Spots a Step Too Far, Patricia Carvellis and Rosie Lewis then reported vociferous objections from Indigenous MP Ken Wyatt and Warren Mundine. By the time I arrived in Arnhem Land, it was clear the special Senate seats balloon had been floated and burned to the ground like the Hindenburg within 48 hours. Abbott ruefully told me that the problem facing constitutional recognition was that his colleagues lacked compassion. The problem with Abbott's foolishness was not the political infeasibility of the Senate seat's allocation, whether with his colleagues or the Australian people, but that it was not democratically defensible. It would upset the system of democratic representation in the country. The voice is not only a more feasible idea, it is a better idea. It does not change the democracy. It is a superior idea to the idea that Abbott, in his foolhardiness, floated for a brief couple of days before being blown to smithereens 
by the violent rejection of his colleagues. Professor Kim Rubenstein from the ANU has written the best about this. She shows that the voice will enhance citizenship by providing the voices of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people within our democratic system without derogating from that system. I commend Rubenstein's writings in relation to how the voice will provide active citizenship on the part of First Nations people. I believe that active citizenship is one of the key requisite changes needed for our people to become part of the mainframe of Australian democratic life. No longer racial groupings sitting on the margins of the democracy, distinct from the settler mainstream, out of sight and out of mind from the main game of Australia, rather a plurality of voices actively part of the Commonwealth. Our people will continue to be represented as members of Parliament and participate in the lawmaking and governmental processes of the country on the same basis as every other Australian citizen. But our voice to these parliaments will speak on behalf of our heritage and our particular needs and agendas as a community. The voice is about integration, not separatism. Some of our people may recoil at the word integration, but integration is not assimilation. We keep our identity as First Peoples, but we do this in the midst of Australia, not at its margins. We do this, as Yunapingu said, by leaning into the future rather than retreating to the past. We advocate plurality, not apartheid. We want differences of all kinds to be respected whilst always avoiding separatism. The voice will bring us into the mainstream as the first peoples of Australia rather than denizens of racial Bantustans in the remote margins of the Commonwealth. The voice will be a decisive step towards moving Australia from the old settler native society to one perhaps where we are all natives of Australia. In my quarterly essay in 2014, I proposed the disturbing idea that even Andrew Bolt would one day be indigenous to Australia. <laughs> I will risk causing a disturbance again tonight by returning to what I wrote. My point is that it is not the law that is well, the wellspring of indigeneity. 
It is a reality concerning the dead, the living, and the people to come, and the country to which they are tied. It is a similar reality of which Scruton writes when he refers to Burke's view of society as an association of the dead, the living, and the unborn. If Burke's association is real, then it is real in the sense captured in Judge Moon's most apposite definition in the Western Sahara case and in the Uluru Statement from the Heart. On this interpretation, it is theoretically possible to take Andrew Bolt seriously when he protests that he too is indigenous to this country. The bones and dust of his ancestors and all settler and immigrant Australians who made this continent their home have been accumulating and mixing with the ancient soil for 226 years. Aboriginal laws and customs recognise the connections that arise from places of birth and burial. In this spiritual sense, the Bolts are becoming indigenous to Australia. Perhaps he could recognise in turn that the bones of Unipingu's ancestors have been returning for millennia to the lands from which they arose. Australia and Australians will inexorably unite and share the country under one citizenship. The voice will be a decisive step towards that unity. Thank you. And that was Cape York leader, lawyer and land rights activist Noel Pearson speaking on The Voice to Parliament at a Sydney University public event last week. To listen to the whole oration and find out more about the University of Sydney Voices on The Voice series, head to www.sydney.edu.au forward slash engage forward slash events. We'll pop the full link on the show notes. And a big thank you to Sydney U for sharing that audio uh, with us um, so we could bring that to you this morning. We're going to be coming back to reconciliation later in the program. But uh, for the moment, here is a song for you. It's Living in the Kimberley, Fitzroy Express.
Listening to eight five five AM. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical community owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone, and in the station to help keep 3CR going for another year. Fierce, independent community media is vital and we need your support to keep radical voices and issues on the airwaves. The 3CR Radiothon kicks off in June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. Call the station on 03 or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, during business hours. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. to the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, screening the very best documentaries from South by Southwest, Sundance, Tribeca, as well as the best local Melbourne and Australian documentaries. Online from the 1st to the 31st of July and at Cinema Nova from the 21st to the 30th of July. For more information, head to mdff.org.au and cinemanova.com.au. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. And you're back listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. And before the break, we heard Living in the Kimberley by Fitzroy Express. We're now going to go to Sonera, who'll be talking about logging. Yes, and last week, following the state budget, it was announced by Daniel Andrews that native logging will be ending in Victoria by December. This comes six months after a landmark Supreme Court judgment last year that found state logging company Vic Forests of breaking the law because they failed to protect a threatened species of glider. This is a monumental victory for environmentalists around the state, as logging was supposed to be phased out more gradually over time. The Andrews state government actually wanted to end logging by 2030, but now it will end six years earlier than planned. I'm now joined by Chris Shuringa from the Victorian Forest Alliance to talk about the announcement and what it all means. Good morning, Chris, and welcome to the show. 
Thank you. Thanks for having me. No worries. Um, first of all, how exactly does logging damage the biodiversity of Australia? Uh, native forest logging, yeah, is a very destructive practice. It takes away pretty much most of the trees from an area uh, and a lot of the wildlife that uh, depends on, on those trees to, to survive will will perish in, in logging operations. It's also terrible for water. It increases uh, water runoff um, and also... Yeah, really, really terrible for uh, climate as well because it um, it ha- it's a high emitting industry and also takes away some of the most carbon dense forests in the world. And so, for a really long time, uh, looking has been destroying massive swathes of forests across Victoria. And so, it's yeah, very exciting to hear that in, in January 2024, uh, native forest looking will be phased out for good. Mm. And how did this decision to end logging come earlier than expected, aside from the landmark case against Vic Forest last year? Yeah, what we know is, is that for a long time, native forest logging has been really deeply unpopular, unpopular with the Victorian public. Uh, and also when the Daniel Andrews government first announced the transition out of logging in 2019, they'd set a transition date for 2030 um, and then just a few months after that announcement uh, the 29-2020 bushfires uh, ravaged uh, a massive part of, of eastern Victoria uh, taking out almost a third of the forest which um, was absolutely devastating for wildlife for communities, for really sensitive forest ecosystems like ash forests which yeah, don't, don't take well to fire um, and so after this uh, massive event, logging still continued, even though heaps of environment groups came out. You know, this has been an absolutely catastrophic event. You need to uh, take stock and, and, and protect forests and, 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 and logging, uh, but logging continued. And so following that, yeah, people really, I think... We're shocked that that was still going ahead and really wanted to. Um, but, yeah, it's been a really long time coming. A lot of people have been campaigning for this for many years. So, yeah, it's been a long fight that's, that kind of has come to a head, I guess, in the last couple of years. And I think also the economic losses, uh, Vic Forest lost over $54 million last year in taxpayer subsidies. Mm. And so it doesn't really make sense for the government to keep logging. And I think, yeah, they, they certainly made the right the right decision. Yeah. And um, can you just tell me, if you can, a bit more about, you know, the case against Vic Forest that happened last year and, you know, what that meant for the logging um what, how that impacted the logging industry and how much impact that had um, in general? Yeah, um, the Supreme Court case against Big Forest mm-hmm. brought by Environment East Gippsland, uh, King Lake Friends of the Forest and Gippsland Environment Group was based on a couple of things. Um, firstly, the precautionary principle, which is a 
part of our environmental, uh, our safe environment laws, which say that before you do something which might have damaging impacts uh, to the environment, you need to consider uh, those those risks and take a precautionary approach um, because a lack of like scientific certainty of, of knowing what the impacts of what you're doing uh, isn't enough to to uh, to continue that that, that act. Um, and so it's been used quite a lot, I guess, over the last few years in other various legal cases um, and basically trying to prove that Big Forest has to comply with this principle in order to, in order to log. Um, and the case argued that they weren't complying with that principle in, um, in relation to the protections of uh, the endangered greater glider and yellow belly glider. And the greater glider... Uh, for folks who don't know, is a very large um, gliding marsupial, and it's endemic to uh, Australia. Um, and also, the yellow belly glider is kind of similar; it's a little bit smaller, um, but yeah, endemic to Australia. And really, really incredible um, uh, animals that are terribly impacted by logging and, and are in decline. And so, yeah, they were arguing that logging has devastating impacts on these species and also Vic Forest, the state-owned logging company, are failing to meet their legal obligations to search for those animals before logging because we all know if you're not going to look for something, then <laughs> you certainly won't find it. Mm-hmm. And the court um, won, uh, uh, ruled in their favour, so the judge agreed with them and mm-hmm. said, uh, yeah, yeah, they've been breaking the law uh, and they need to survey all of the areas before they log and they also need to um, protect all the all the greater gliders that they find. So it was a massive outcome and a really incredible win and uh, because of the that uh, legal action, logging has pretty much been on hold for the last six months because, um, yeah, Big Forest basically say that they can't survey all of those areas and they can't and they can't meet those legal obligations. Mm. And, like, you know, that was one of the ways that um, Vic Forests, um, you know, got some accountability for their actions. And that was, like, a huge deal. And I was just wondering, you know, how can, um, you know, climate activists or anyone else hold, um, you know, organisations like Vic Forests accountable? What do they need to do? Yeah, it's so important. Um Seeing an injustice like this and seeing, you know, um, potential corruption, uh, I think community action and the actions of citizen scientists, uh, so all of, all the people who were out on the ground looking for these animals and also providing evidence for court case, for, for court cases, their work was just, yeah, fundamental in, in getting this announcement and I think, it's it's pretty um, heartwarming to, to know and just hopeful to know that um, grassroots community groups coming together, working together to do this sort of um, yeah, incredible work, mm-hmm. which takes hours and hours, of, you know, volunteer hours and dedication, um, can act, can really make a difference. Uh, and yeah, I think it's so important that governments don't 
uh, get away with these kind of things need to be held accountable. And it's frustrating that people have to go to these lengths uh, to do that. Uh, but people care so deeply about this issue and other climate and, and social justice issues. And so, yeah, I hope that um, people see it as, um, as a win and that, you know, anything is possible. Mm. And we know that ending logging is a step to conserve the environment, but what else needs to be done to ensure the environment is protected? Yeah, it's it's pretty unclear what the state government is planning to do, I suppose, in terms of, uh, yeah, I guess after January 1st, how the forest will be protected. They're going to be developing a panel that will uh, take submissions and form form a report of recommendations to the government of what what areas kind of qualify for what, and they'll be opening that to a whole range of stakeholder groups, including First Nations groups and traditional owners. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it'll be really interesting to see uh, how that um, how that goes and who's on the panel and and sort of what happens going forward with that because. I think the government said that there was 1.8 million hectares of forest that was, well, is uh, still under the logging allocation orders, uh, which will, from Jan 1st, no longer be. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a lot to think about of, you know, what's going to happen. But um, certainly really happy to see the government say and acknowledge that First Nations management is is important uh, and we we completely agree there has to be um yeah it has to be led by by first nations groups and traditional owners um yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you for e- emphasizing um you know first uh, that first nations voices need to be included um in this issue as well um because you know i feel like the debate has been more about you know the environmentalists versus um, the people who work in the timber industry and how it's a loss for them. But, um, you know, the First Nations voices are getting lost in this whole thing. Um, And just for our last question, before we go, um, can the decision to end native logging be made in the rest of the states like it has been in Victoria? Absolutely. I think um, it's so important that this is a domino effect that that impacts other states as well. I've been to Lutruita Tassi um, many, many times and seen some of the incredible forests there. And the logging there, yeah, is is really destructive. And I think it's certainly well past time that native forest looking ends across the continent WA um, they've got a transition plan for January 1st as well 2024 next year so yeah it's so important that other areas are protected and that we see this um, this is a bit of a trend yeah yeah um, well thank you so much for coming to uh, co- uh, well yeah talking to us today about this um, it's uh been really great to talk to you 
Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. And that was Chris Shuringa from the Victorian Forest Alliance talking about the Andrew State Government's announcement last week to end native logging by the end of this year. Um, for more information, please look at the show notes on our website when we upload the podcast. Um, but yeah, um, now we're going to go on to a break and we'll be back. ACR's annual Radiothon fundraiser launches in June. We need your financial support to be independent, community controlled, and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon keeps the station radical and enables us to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference, and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. 3CR Radiothon, show your support during June 2023. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. Well, that was a fascinating conversation about logging. There's so much complexity in it. You know? Oh, yeah. It's, it's a complicated issue, Claudia. It's something that was on Talk Back with Attitude on Thursday, uh, which I co-produced. I'll put that little plug out there, uh, <laughs> 10 to 11 uh, on, a, on a Thursday. And we had uh, a few people from across the region discuss their issues. And a lot of logging producers actually called us and regarding their um, argument that we should be actually um, planting uh, trees from Finland. Um, and they believe that could be a, a good option to um, substitute the native native effects. Right. Yeah. So. So like a combination of indigenous. Yeah, and I, I think that's the idea, and I think trying to maximise the the timber industry. I think the problem is that houses are still built with timber, so the argument is mm. the argument is always been well supply, um, and I think due to the fact that uh, we have. I think exported so much to China, we lose on supply. So it's a really, it's a difficult uh, conversation. Victoria, Victoria and the Victorian Forestry Group has been arguing over this issue for the last, oh, I think seven to eight years regarding logging, mm. the general, how do you manage it and everything like that. Yeah, there's so many different stakeholders. We've got the First Nations um, communities, the logging families who are saying, well, you know, it's fine to support us into other work, but mm. we want to stay here. Yeah, yeah. What's going to happen to our I towns? Think, I and think the transition, I think it, it was a bit too quick, so they have to, like, transition quickly, so it's going to be a bit difficult for them. But, yeah. Um, mm. Yeah, there was all that sort of joy over coming forward six years, I think, you know, mm. and doing it quickly, which is, is great on the one hand, but it's not a big window to implement a transition if you don't you haven't you know put the infrastructure in place okay we're going to go to another song this is why by Quitcher Edwards and when we come back we'll be talking uh, with Uncle John Baxter a board member of Reconciliation Victoria So 
dream Little children at her feet Looking for a special treat She can't even make ends meet Saw the tear in her eyes As she kissed the children goodbye Taken by the wealthy man I guess she's trying to understand Oh, why? Oh, why? Please tell me why Do the children cry? Tell me why do the children cry? Oh, how her heart bleeds, pressured by the children's needs. In a world of so much greed, when love can't buy a feed, she can't even buy a shoe. Now she's got the blues Never any good news This story is sad but true Oh why Oh why Please tell me why Do the children cry Truth and lies as she looks at it is gone by. Oh, how it makes her cry. Oh, why? Oh, why? Please tell me why. Tell me why do the children cry, cry? Thank you. And that was Kucha Edwards with Why. Um, so before we move on, please note this upcoming segment may contain mentions of names or a discussion of deceased persons. So if you don't feel this is your cup of tea, please feel free to tune in again after 15 minutes. So as part of the Manningham Art Gallery, the exhibition called Unfinished Business reveals the stories of 30 First Nations people with disability. Joining me this morning is Proud Laja Laja, an Aruga man, 
uh, Uncle John Baxter, who is a board member of Reconciliation Victoria and First Nations First Peoples Disability Network. He is also the NDIS and Manningham Council's Reconciliation Action Plan Working Group member. So we're going to be discussing about the ongoing exhibition and in regard to National Reconciliation Week. Uncle John has been intru- instrumental in ensuring the exhibition honours and respects the cultural heritage of the First Nations people it represents. He worked al- alongside human rights social documentarian Belinda Mason to bring the artworks into Manningham. Now joins us Uncle John. Good morning, Uncle John. Good morning. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? Good. Happy yeah. National Reconciliation Week. <laughs> yep. So, Uncle John, can we first get you to share about what's the exhibition about? i tell you what, it is really, really exciting. Um, the exhibition tells the story, actually, of a group of friends of mine, but it's of 30 of our First Nations people and those living with disability. And it is truly extraordinary because the way it helps tell the story is by the most extraordinary photographic images, which I believe are referred to as backlit three-dimensional images that sort of seem to follow you around the room. And it really has to be seen to be understood. It is amazing. Mm, I see. So why have you decided to uh, bring this exhibition to life and why do you think this is so important? Well, if I could share the history of the exhibition Unfinished Business, this started quite some time ago um, Mm. and uh, the artist, Belinda Mason, was the one who did all the research for the exhibition, went around Australia to interview and then photograph uh, the participants that are involved. And the first screening we had was in Geneva, Switzerland, um, at the United Nations building, which was just extraordinary. Mm. And since that time, it has been to quite a number of places around the world. I also was uh, very fortunate to um, help with the launch at the Museum of Tolerance in um, New York, uh, the USA. Um, And it's been in in a number of different states around Australia, except Melbourne. And so I kind of thought, Hey, a minute, we've got to work on that because I live here in Melbourne. Mm. And so started the negotiations about what do you think if we were able to get that exhibition here? And I said I worked with uh, Manningham with their um, Reconciliation Advisory Committee mm. and um, they have taken this on board as well. And the result is the exhibition is it's called an MC Squared, which, which is part of... Um, Manningham's council officer, mm-hmm. Doncaster. I see. So, but Uncle John, we we don't want to give a bit away too much about the exhibition. But so basically, the exhibition does exhibit your story alongside other First Nations uh, people with disability. So, what is it about your story that you would like people to know about? 
I think that if we're able to tell our story, that we have individuals who have achieved, even though there's been uh, at a, at a degree of difficulty, it is well known that Aboriginal peoples are a disadvantaged group. And that might lead to a number of circumstances. It might be with their educational, with their health, with their um, location. But I find it very inspiring to hear and read the stories of Aboriginal people, despite that, have managed to achieve their goals and have been a true uh, role model uh, to our, especially our younger people and um, true elders to the, to the sense. Mm. And so I see, so we are, and, and with the fact that it's National Reconciliation Week, which is the time for people to learn about our shared cultures and obviously shared cultures and histories and with this exhibition, it's it's also a very good opportunity for the young people to understand and learn about. So, how would this exhibition be a good opportunity to achieve reconciliation? I think we're going through a very interesting time at the moment with reconciliation. We have um, the Uluru Statement of the Heart. Uh, we have our voice to Parliament, and we have a referendum that is going to come up later this year. And I'm hoping that this exhibition, along with other important events, can help build the conversation for reconciliation and the work that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people do, but also to these important discussion points on where do we fit as a community, where do we sit as a society? How do we continue to be able to move forward and to be able to encourage and support our First Nations peoples? Mm, I see. And I guess also coming to almost, sorry, almost almost the end of regarding uh, of our questions, but just how... Um, what, what do you hope for for people to learn more and understand continuously with, for First Nations people, especially those who are uh, yeah, with disabilities and importantly towards people with disability? Mm. Um, I think people with disability, our First Nations people with disability, have, um, well, maybe considered a double disadvantage. And so we're sort of saying, well, that may not be the case. Or even if they do have disabilities, we still have the capacity to achieve. And we would like to showcase this through this exhibition. I think Manningham has done an amazing job with the exhibition, and I encourage everybody to go along and have a good look at it and have a time out to read through the stories of the 30 individuals. I think that for myself, being able to, the message that I would love to leave would be that whether we are a First Nations person or not, um, if we have disability or not, we all have opportunity. Uh, I think that Australia is the most amazing place 
and I trust that people will be one of the take-homes they get, that there is opportunity available for all. And sometimes it takes a little bit of courage, mm. it takes a little bit of hard work, mm. sometimes it takes a lot of hard work, but the opportunities are there. And I think to be able to read through those stories, to be able to identify with those individuals, I think is really, really important. And um, I'm very grateful for um, all the people who sort of helped uh, put uh, the exhibition together, especially during uh, National Reconciliation Week. And um, as I said, I, I really encourage people to go and have a good look at the exhibition. Mm, definitely, and yeah, this this is such an important topic, especially at this time of the week. And I I'm also really interested in this exhibition. I really do hope to go and visit this as well, Uncle John. <laughs> I hope you do. Yeah. <laughs> yep. All right. Thank you so much, Uncle John, for g- giving your time to us to talk to talk today. Thank you very kindly for the opportunity to be able to have a good day with you. Yep. Lovely. Thank you, Uncle John. Okay. Bye. 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 Take care. That was Laja Laja and Narunga man Uncle John Baxter sharing about the exhibition called Unfinished Business, a Business, which tells the stories of First Nations people with disabilities. So the show runs until Saturday, 29th of July, so that's a lot of time for you to go. Manningham Art Gallery is open from 11am to 4pm on Wednesdays to Saturdays. And if you don't know where it is, it is at 687 Doncaster Road at Doncaster, Victoria, uh, 3108. So, and there's plenty of on-site parking there, and the museum is free entry. But of course, if you're unable to visit the exhibition on-site, you can go to the website unfinishedbusiness.net.au to learn more about the First Nations people with disabilities stories. So basically on there, you get to have a look at the artworks and understand their stories. And But please note that that website does contain images, voices and narratives of diseased persons. So yep, just take precaution on that. So yeah. And now, so stay tuned. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Excellent. That was so interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Going to get along to that as well. Yeah. And especially because, like, you know, with such an important week, this story is I, it really caught my attention because I think even though it's contains sensitive discussions and topics, uh, topics of, of um, disease person stories, but it's a very good platform to actually go and understand and learn about Australians culture Australian's history and I think that continuously helps us understand what a lot of the First Nations people are going through. And I think exhibitions that uh, profile particular people who uh, might have um, a particular you know affinity with an issue or an experience like living with a disability it shows us uh, the, the diversity and the nuanced um, need for discussion when we're talking about First Nations people, when we're talking about reconciliation. Um, we're not talking about one group of people. There are many experiences and lives and histories of place and you know disability or rural, regional 
urban experiences and, yeah, I think having opportunities to engage with the small pieces of different people's lives really helps us yeah. reconcile, I think, and, mm. and sort of culturally engage mm. more meaningfully. Yeah, especially, and also it's it's this a lot of these participant stories you know they've been intertwined with Australia's political and social history and so that's why it's been resulted in the high rates of disability in the Aboriginal and Torres Strait communities so this exhibition actually launched in September 2013 as um, Uncle John mentioned that it started in the US in um, sorry not US in Geneva so which uh, at the United uh Sorry, it it happened at the Palais des Nations in Geneva. And so, yeah. And basically, um, the Director General of the United Nations office there, uh, Peter Wolcott, who is Australia's ambassador to United Nations. Yeah, they, the one who basically brought this and introduced this. Mm. Yeah, It's been a very long time. I think doesn't... Oh, it's been 10 years. It's been 10 years since um, this exhibition started, but obviously it's only then now brought to Melbourne to actually mm. showcase this here. And I think, yeah, even though it's been talked about a long time, but, you know, this is still a continuous discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's not just a Reconciliation Week discussion at all. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to go to a song now. This is Sunshine by Emma Donovan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And that was Emma Donovan with Sunshine. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast with Pat Sonera, Grace and Claudia. And over to Pat now. Thank you very much, Claudia. Now we'll be speaking to Professor in Psychology, Chair of the Anti-Racism Hallmark Research Initiative and President of the Academic Board at the University of Melbourne in Karen Farkerson, discussing racism in sport. Karen, welcome to the program. How are you going this morning? I'm going really well. How are you? Very good, thank you. Firstly, Karen, the news last night regarding uh, the Hawthorne uh, racism uh, investigation has ended. Uh, Gillian McLaughlin made a statement last night and was posed some questions by a few journalists. What's your uh, What was your take on uh, the situation that was brought to air last night? I'm sure that everyone is happy that it's finished. Um, it doesn't seem to have been a very good process for anybody involved, to be honest. Yeah, it sounds like uh, it, it does feel uh, to me that uh, both sides of the story uh, have not uh, been told, especially those four uh, families who have definitely been impacted by the by what happened uh, over their time at the Hawthorne Football Club. Yes, definitely. Um, I'm assuming listeners probably know a bit about it, um, but uh, um, there was an investigation at the Hawthorne Football Club around cultural safety that ended up being referred to the AFL. Um, for further investigation, and the further investigation um, it, it wasn't uh, it didn't sound like it was a very good process. Yeah, yeah, it definitely, it definitely does. It seems like they're going on to the Human Rights Commission uh, as we speak, Karen. Uh, it's something right. they'll be looking to do in the next few days. In terms of racism in sport, at the moment we've seen Jamara Dougal Hagen for the Western Bulldogs full forward um, lift his shirt up and replicate Nicky Winmar's uh, famous. Um, shirt lift up uh, back in 1993, only a few blocks of the road um, from Smith Street here in Collingwood uh, at, Vi- at Victoria Park. And 
What's your take of the situation in the past couple months of seeing, you know, Jamara Ugal-Hagen being targeted, but also uh, Charlie Cameron, Eddie Betts in the past as well? Um, so racism is a feature of Australian society, and it's just unfortunately a feature of Australian sport. And we know this because it's um, it's it, um, it's been a it's been really a feature for the whole entire time that sport's been in Australia um, settlements. I did a project a few years ago with some um, colleagues on how junior sports clubs manage diversity, so children's sporting. We looked at five different sports, and in that project, we found that racism was something that was happening on the field every week in most of the sports. So it's not as though it's an aberration. It's normal practice. Um, at the end of that project, I came to a position where I thought we needed to have zero tolerance for racism in sports. Um, but, of course, racism structures sport in a bunch of different ways. So the, the most obvious and old-fashioned kind of racism is the vilification that, um, that, that people are experiencing on the field. It used to be from the other players, and it still is in junior sports. But mm-hmm. in um, more professional sport, it tends to be from audiences. Um, you know, the, the whole Adam Goods um, booing situation is an example of that, but also more recently that's been also going on. But actually sport is shaping sport, sport is being shaped by racism in other ways as well, in, in terms of the kinds of positions that non-white players have on the field, in terms of post-playing careers for people who've had professional careers. Um, it's, it, you know, that you don't see very many Aboriginal coaches, for example, even though we do see quite a lot of Aboriginal players in the NFL. Mm, yes, yes. In terms of, uh, Karen, the, the non uh, traditional means of racism. Now we're seeing, you know, everyone has a phone and everyone wants to comment or disagree with their player of, of choice on on their issues. But uh, we are seeing, you know, that's been a more heavily heavily used platform to unfortunately um, spit um, awful stuff to you know Indigenous First Nations players. Absolutely, it, it, it's so the kind of racism has always been going on, but now it can be amplified mm. um, and shared more broadly. That said, anti-racism can also be amplified and shared more broadly. And sometimes we do see online um, anti-racism uh, interventions um, that that try to uh, to challenge that kind of narrative, um, which is nice, but not as they, they don't seem to be as as amplified as mm. the racism. Yes, so, yes, it, you know, yes, yes. I think there's possibilities for social media, but I also think that the, you know anonymity on there means that people would say stuff that they would never say face to face. Yeah, yeah, it does seem like that. It seems like you'd be the invisible man uh, instead of uh, uh, coming to my face and say that. I, I always do wonder, you know, why why people do that. And um, it, it's just maybe their, their mindset uh, during that time. In terms of more education, and you were pointing that back to junior sport and grassroots sport and how to educate, um, you know, just not kids, but also adults regarding um, this issue. Uh, do you think do you think that's going to be something that should be in f- forefront of probably a lot of major Australian sporting organisations? Um, I think education is important but not sufficient because I think that we've had education on racism for a really long time mm. and we're still seeing racism. So if education was sufficient, we would have we would see a, a decrease. Um, so I think that that there needs to be uh, other kinds of other kinds of interventions. So, as I said, I, I think we need to move to a zero tolerance from for at least the overt racism that we can that we can easily see and easily tackle. So that if somebody is racially vilifying somebody else on the field, the person who's doing the vilification gets pulled off the field, not the player that's being vilified, because that often happens. Mm. Um, that if somebody is vilifying in the in the stands, that they get kicked out. 
Mm, yeah, yeah. I, I, one of the more, yeah, one of the more effective ways of tackling racism is for bystanders to say, "Hey, that is not good. Please stop." Um, and I think we need to have a cultural shift that empowers bystanders to to say stuff when people are are, are being racist. It's tricky because you also need to feel safe if you're a bystander. And yeah. you know, as a small woman, I'm unlikely to to call somebody out in a public space. So it needs to be the people who are uh, in positions of, of you know, uh, more powerful positions than me to actually call things out, I think. Yeah, yeah. So it's more like for the grassroots level, more like the president, the committee members also, uh, you know, uh, yeah, the canteen lady, you know, you name it, Karen. They, they can right. and stand up but, for what they believe in. And also at the, the, the professional level, other people who are attending the matches, um, and also clubs need to come out in, in really clear, like, if you are being racist, we don't want you coming to our games. Um, I think they need to be much more uh, overt about that and uh, have sanctions for people who are being racist at their games that they can identify, especially if they're members. Yeah, yeah. What's your take, Karen, of what's been happened over the last, you know, six, you know, 12 months? We've seen, you know, a lot of tr- different, um, not just First Nations players being targeted. We've also seen uh, other nationalities targeted in other sports uh, in Australia regarding, I know soccer had a, there's been, a, a soccer, f- soccer is one that's always been an issue, but um, in the last six months of, you know, racially profiling um, the players involved in the, I don't know how well aware you were, but Melbourne City played Melbourne Victory in a match just before Christmas, which turned into chaos um, with some fans deciding to jump the fence. I know it's a completely, um, there was a completely different um, viewpoint to why they jumped the fence, but there was a lot of racial profiling to the sport itself after that in terms of, you know, um, uh, in terms of the players, but also the also a general fan. Yeah, so I, I think, so I don't think it's new. I think this kind of stuff has been a feature of Australian professional sport for a really long time. And, you know, even before A-League, it was a feature of, of soccer here in Australia. Um, so I don't know that, it, that, it's, that it's actually new. I think, it, I think we're having a moment now where racism is getting a bit more attention, especially after the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, people are noticing it more. Um, but it's always been there, and it's racism against um, non-white migrants as well as First Nations people has always been a feature of sport. I think um, particularly soccer, there's been racism against um, non-white migrants um, and, and different ethnic groups, in, in different migrant ethnic groups. Um, so I, I, I don't think it's, I don't actually think it's new. I think it's a continuation. I think the fact that we're hearing about it is a good thing because it means mm. that people are concerned about it and uh, maybe, yeah, maybe it's an opportunity to make some actual change. Yeah, and and on to that change, you know, we've got the referendum to the voice of parliament uh, coming up very soon. I've seen nearly every sporting organisation across Australia uh, put their voice to yes. Um, do you think if the referendum gets up, do you think it could solve racism in Australia or do you think we have a long way to go in terms of learning and understanding our First Nations people, but just every culture in general? Um, I think it's an important first step. Um, I think... It- I think it's a, an important principle that First Nations should have a say and have give uh, give their views on um, on legislation that affects them and on policies that affect them. Um, they haven't been able to do that in the past, and it it's, um, it hasn't been to their benefit. I think it's a really important first step. I do not think it's going to solve racism. I think racism is embedded in our social institutions in Australia. Um, it's embedded in the way the nation was founded. You know the the dispossession and the dehumanization of First Nations um, on the one hand, and then the white Australia policy on the other hand. So we have two different kinds of racism that are 
really foundational to a country and, and one bit of legislation isn't, you know, this referendum isn't going to fix that. But there's a lot more work to be done. Yeah, yeah, know, yeah. To unpack the kind of structural racism that, that's embedded in our healthcare system, our, our education system, our criminal justice system, um, all of these all of these institutions um, have issues with racism. So uh, I, I said, I think it's an important first step, but I don't think it's, it's going to solve things. Yes, yes, Karen. And in terms of your research, are you doing further research into this and have you uh, going to be providing uh, further further help uh, to those stakeholders? At the moment, I'm doing some research on, um, on racism in Victoria and what kinds of anti-racism initiatives that uh, organisations are implementing and whether they're evaluating them. So far, we're finding that there are very few evaluations of the kinds of anti-racism initiatives that people are in- implementing. And when I say anti-racism initiatives, things like um, diversity training. Um, uh, reconciliation action plans. Um, you know, are there any impacts from these things? Um, and as far as we can tell, uh, we don't know. Mm. So I think I think that, that there's quite a lot of work to be done. Um, my work has shifted from looking at racism to looking at anti-racism, thinking about what might be effective in tackling racism. I think it's important for us to think about um, learnings from other places, that what might be effective uh, elsewhere. Would that work here? We have a very specific context here in Australia. Our racialized system here is very different. It's also quite taboo to talk about racism here. Yes. That, and to talk about race here in a way that it's not in other places. And so I think that's an extra level of complication in, in trying to do anti-racism, um, anti-racism work without really kind of explicitly saying, actually, this is anti-racism. We're trying not to be racist here. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, I, totally, I totally understand where you're coming from, Karen. It's, it's very complex uh, given uh, both Australia, you know, people compare Australia to New Zealand sometimes when it comes to it. And it's like, hang on a minute, New Zealand, um, the, uh, you know, have a great relationship with their Maoris. Though they have a treaty and we don't have any yeah. treaty here. And, you know, of course, there's treaty processes going on around the country, um, in, in, including here in Victoria. Yes. Well, thank you very much, Karen, uh, for being on. Uh, it was a really interesting uh, conversation, and I wish you best of luck with your research in the future. Thank you, Patrick. Good to talk to you. That was Professor in Psychology, Chair of the Anti-Racism Hallmark Research Initiative and President of Academic Board at the University of Melbourne, Karen Farkhausen. And you're listening to 3CR 855 AM uh, this Wednesday morning. Great chat. <laughs> well, thanks very much, Claudia. I hope you enjoyed it. it was, it's I a, did. It's a very fascinating issue. I think it's got multi, multi facets of you know. It's, it's a society issue. It's not just a sporting issue. It's it's really, really uh, fascinating. And on this week of reconciliation week of, as well. Yeah, I think it sort of cuts through a lot of the discussions that we've been having here at uh, breakfast lately. And um, yeah, as she pointed out, it's a it's a big uh, big journey when it's so embedded structurally in society, but great to be having these conversations. Great to hear that people like uh, her are doing this work, educating us and, uh, you know, Mm. showing us the way forward. Yeah. I think we covered quite a lot, quite a big range of uh, topics that help to understand, like, First Nations people and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, like, with topics surrounding things that have relate to relate to them yeah mm. and today and yeah it just really helps people t- hopefully our listeners do get to le- uh, have, have learned a lot from the discussions that all have occurred today yeah should we just mention a bit about Radiothon yeah we should we mm. chatted a bit about it last week didn't we so mm-hmm. two weeks to go for Radiothon yeah it kicks off in June which is tomorrow yes 
But we'll be having a special Radiothon day on, in two weeks on Wednesday on our show. But, uh, yeah, listeners um, can get involved at any time. We've mm. got our donate, you know, page always up on our 3CR web website mm-hmm. and we've also got a 3CR breakfast give now uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Page as well, so um, you can dr- donate directly to Breakfast and help us reach our target and help us keep sharing the stories. And yeah. and uh, for those listening as well, it is tax deductible, so it's always a little bit of a bonus to donate to Three CR and make sure all of us can produce great stuff uh, during the next um, years to come. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we we actually have quite a big amount to reach to and so far it's it's really lovely that we've already managed to reach about hundred dollars plus from an anonymous donor thank you so much for that fantastic so, yeah, yeah bit of a way to go we've mm-hmm. got to get to 1500 on wednesday breakfast so yeah if you if- want to support um independent media i think um donating to 3cr is a great way to do so so we can um, keep sharing our stories um, you know stuff that's not covered um, in the mainstream here which is very important since um, we actually do care about um, you know a diverse range of uh, supporting a diverse range of voices and it's not just a box to tick like it is in um, mainstream media here yeah, exactly. And I think also when, you know, we've also been hearing uh, about the experiences of some people and the racism at the ABC, for example, you know, the media industry, um, you know, also has issues in, in that regard. And I think, mm. you know, 3CR is a really safe place. It's so inclusive. So it's not just in our the stories that we celebrate and respect diversity, but... It's lived every day here. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, all this is to support Radical Radio because, you know, our streets here is a place with no corporate advertising. And so, and it's free from, you know, corporate mainstream media discussions of topics. So, continuously, as we are here, we continue to bring you stories that are underheard and undermined. So, and of course, for progressive causes. So, yes, do please do continue listening to 3CR. It's a great platform for you to listen to. And so, thank you yeah. all so much. Yep, great yeah. show today, y'all. Yeah, thanks to all our guests for joining us. And uh, next week we'll be back with more. Um, thanks to all our listeners for tuning in today, and uh, hope you can get along to the Manningham Art Galleries unfinished, unfinished make a little trip out there, Grace. business. Lovely. Do go ahead. Yeah. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep 3CR going for another year. Fierce, independent community media is vital and we need your support to keep radical voices and issues on the airwaves. The 3CR Radiothon kicks off in June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. Call the station on 03 9419 8377 or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during business hours. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical.
I'm Nova Paris and you're listening to 3CR. Be proud, be strong. You have a smile that brings a tear to my eye. Three CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings, cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. Three CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.